Now, if you turn with me to John chapter 4, <clears throat> I'm going to read, uh, it's a fairly lengthy passage, verses 4 30, and I'm going to read verse 39 as well. Now he, that's Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when, tr when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Well, why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of, what, because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. And this is God's word. In John chapter 3, <clears throat> if you were here last week, uh, if you're new or visiting, uh, we have Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a respected male. He's a religious leader, a ruler. He's educated. He's wealthy. He's successful. You see, Nicodemus, he's in. But in John chapter 4, we have the Samaritan woman. The next chapter, Samaritan woman. Promiscuous, irreligious, 
no credentials. She is a worldly failure. She's outside of every circle. And yet Jesus calls them both. Both of them are born again. And he says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God, in other words, God, the gift of God is knowable. You can actually comprehend. You can actually experience and understand. You can know him. Jesus wants us to know him. So much so that 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this outcast woman who becomes one of the original missionaries of the gospel for God's glory. There are four things we're going to learn today. Now, this is one of my favorite passages. It's not why I'm going to break this up, but we're going to split this lesson over the next two weeks, today and next Sunday. So you got a little cliffhanger, all right? You're going to have to come back next week to uh, listen to the conclusion. But I'm going to give you the first two today. Uh, well, I'm going to tell you all four. Uh, the gospel redraws our boundaries. The gospel quenches our thirst. The gospel challenges what's at our center, what's our motivational center. And lastly, the gospel makes us beautiful. The gospel redraws our boundaries, quenches our thirst, challenges what's at our motivational center, and makes us beautiful. We're going to cover the first two today. Gospel redraws our boundaries, quenches our thirst. First, the gospel redraws our boundaries. Verse 9, the woman says, what are you talking to me for? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Verse 27, the disciples, later on, they come to him. They see, they're surprised that he's talking to a woman. But they don't ask. You know why? Because they understood. Jesus is sitting. This is the posture. He sat down by the well, sitting, teaching this woman, talking to this woman. And he's expounding on worship. Now, you have to understand, in ancient times, rabbis, they sat while they were teaching. If you were here for last week's sermon with Nicodemus, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. He's sad. But there are a couple things. Rabbis never taught women, and they never taught alone, never with a woman alone. But this woman is with Jesus, and she's with him alone. Why? Water was needed for everything. I mean, water is needed for everything today. You need water to cook. You need water to clean. You need water to disinfect. You need water to bathe. You need water to drink. Water is synonymous with life. But in those ancient times, water was not readily available. They didn't have the plumbing and the irrigation systems that we have today, right? So women, they always journeyed together at a very, very early time in the morning in that very uh, hot uh, climate they gathered early in the morning, went to a distant spring to draw water and to bring it back to use it for the day. But this woman avoided the crowd. No one was with her. In fact, she came at the sixth hour. That is the hottest time of the day. This woman chose the hottest time of the day to go and draw water so that she would absolutely be certain that no one would be there uh, when she came to draw water. She intended to be alone, to travel alone. She's been alone. Why? We know it's because she's an outcast. She's out of every circle. She's out of every ring. But look, verse 4, Jesus passes through Judea. She co he comes from Judea into Samaria. 
at a time when Jews avoided Samaria altogether, he goes through Samaria. He's crossing ethnic racial boundaries. Verses 6 to 7, he sits down. He's in this posture of teaching with this woman. Meaning he's crossing gender boundaries, social boundaries. Verse 7, it's a Samaritan woman. This woman is a Samaritan. Verse 9, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's this religious history that divided the two people so much strife so that Jews would rather take the longer route around Samaria to get to where they were going. But Jesus goes right through, right through Samaria. He's crossing cultural boundaries. He's crossing religious boundaries. And of course, we have verse 18. Jesus says, you've had five husbands and the man that you're living with currently is not your husband. This woman is morally impure. Morally impure. But Jesus not only associates with this woman, he's teaching her. He's inviting her in. He's crossing moral boundaries. Verse 4, in fact, it says he had to go through Samaria. He had to go there. This woman is out of every circle. She's not in the right ethnic circle, gender circle, social circle, cultural circle, religious circle, or moral circle. And she's likely uneducated, possibly illiterate, poor. In John chapter 3, just one chapter prior, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus, who is an elder, educated, wealthy, a male, a ruler. He's supposed to be in. But he comes to seek Jesus, and Jesus says, you are out unless you are born again. Isn't that remarkable? It's a hard saying. That's what this series is about. But here, Jesus comes to seek out this woman and basically tells her, you're invited. I'm inviting you. You're in. In fact, I came for you. You're in. It's remarkable. It's unbelievable. If you look at the inviting grace of Jesus, the inviting, compassionate grace of Jesus, that's the gift, you see. And if this Samaritan woman can be invited to be with Jesus, then anyone here can be invited to be with Jesus. And if Jesus is willing to go out of his way with this poor, uneducated, marginalized woman who's cast out of every circle, he will certainly be willing to go out of his way for you. Even the woman's surprised. Why are you talking with me? Why would you be willing to cross ethnic, gender, and social, and cultural, and religious, and moral boundaries? This can stain you. People catch you talking to me. Not just talking to me where I am status-wise, but talking to me. Do you know what that could do to you? Verse 9, she says, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why? Verse 15, you see the transformation? He goes from you're a Jew. Verse 15, sir, give me this water. You're a teacher. You're a man. You're crossing gender boundaries. 
Verse 19, I can see that you are a prophet. In other words, you're crossing religious boundaries, moral boundaries. Verse 28, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the one? Could this be the one that God sent, the Messiah? Could this be the Christ? In other words, godliness is the main reason why I've never been in any time in my life. But this is God himself. And he's saying, I'm in. New life. Born again. Renewal. Have you experienced it? Today, wars are fought over ethnicity and race, gender, society, culture, religion, morals. Wars are fought over these things. And yet Jesus works through all those broken boundaries Those barriers that have been put up, he works through that. He doesn't work despite it. It's because of those things, because of those boundaries. He actually works through it to reconcile this woman to God first. What does that tell you? Jesus is saying there is no ethnic or racial boundary. There's no gender or social or cultural religious or moral boundary that I will not be willing to cross for you. And when you see that Jesus has crossed all those boundaries for you, would you not be willing and empowered to cross all those boundaries for others? Over the course of the past year and a half, but it's been going on hundreds of years, ethnic and racial barriers in this country. Some of y'all brought up and some of the most ethnocentric mindsets in the world. Would you be willing to cross those boundaries for your neighbor? Because Jesus crossed every boundary, every boundary for you. That's why we're placed in a city. For those of you who are new, that's why we're in the city. The city is much higher rent, much more the quality of the facilities is much worse. You can get something twice as good as this building for half the price, just 20 minutes away, 30 minutes away. But why don't we do that? Why are we making the sacrifice to be in the city? It's not just symbolic. We're trying to cross the boundaries and get in and invite other people in. That's going to require, it's not just a said thing or a stated, it requires the church of Jesus to mobilize and vote with their feet not just with their mouths. I want to see y'all voting with your feet on that. Would you be willing to cross every boundary? Because Jesus, to the degree that you have seen Jesus cross every boundary for you, you will be willing to cross every boundary for others. Remember, in ancient Rome, women were completely marginalized. They had no rights. In fact, A woman's testimony was not even considered valid in court. It would never hold up in court. If a woman lost her husband, she would have a set period of time by which she needs to be remarried. And if she is not, she is considered outcast and she will lose her Roman citizenship. But the poor and the sick and the fatherless They were considered out, but the church throughout history brought them in. They didn't say, well, look, our rights are trampled on too. They're on the hunt for us too. 
They didn't say, look, just shut up. Stop complaining. Buck up. Just deal with it. They didn't do that. The church is known throughout history for its radical giving, radical generosity, radical service, radical care. Women and the poor and the orphans, the uneducated flocked to the church. And they, they started to give. They didn't make excuses. Well, I don't have much. If I had more, they started to give. They redrew their boundaries. Why? Because in the church, they saw God crossing every boundary for them. And if they could redraw their boundaries, God can work in all of us here to redraw our boundaries. The gospel redraws our boundaries. The second point, our last point for the day, uh, the gospel quenches our thirst. In verses 4 to 7, I'm just going to summarize here. Jesus is going to Galilee, but he goes through Samaria. And at that time, in that moment, a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. And this conversation that ensues between verses 7 and 26, uh, it seems really choppy to us. It seems like they're making a lot of illogical jumps. But you have to understand that in those two people, Jesus Christ talking to this woman, to them, the conversation made absolute sense to each other. You see, because Jesus, in somewhat of a double entendre in their language, is saying, I can offer you, I can give you something More than just forgiveness, more than just a new start, I'm offering you a whole new life. I'm not here to make you just better. I'm not here to give you a supplement, a vitamin of spirituality. I'm here to give you a whole new life. I'm not here to make you nicer. I'm here to make you new. Water means what? Cleansing. I mean, if you read any even modern author, water generally means what? Cleansing. Newness. New life. In fact, it meant that all through the Old Testament. And it's all synonymous with the work of God's Spirit. In chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and the Spirit. They were synonymous. And Nicodemus was born again. He experienced new life. Here, we see God's spirit at work now. What Jesus was teaching Nicodemus, we're seeing literally in action, in that conversation, in that dialogue. I don't know what your dialogues are like with each other. But in that dialogue, we see the spirit of God bringing new life and renewal to this woman and all the elements that we need for renewal that we need to apply in our lives and receive. Now, think about this. We don't live in, I mean, the East Coast is oppressive in its heat, isn't it? I mean, especially nowadays. Um, the East Coast is probably one of the most humid and, and, and hot areas in the country during, during the months of July and August. It is oppressive, isn't it? But we don't live in a climate like a desert, like the desert in the Near East. And so most likely because of our resources that are abounding, we've never seen anyone suffer from dehydration. But the reality is dehydration is painful. There is a searing heat. Your bodies 
are made mostly of water. You know that, right? I mean, you don't have to be a biology major to know that your bodies are made mostly of water. And so your body is constantly depleting of water. It's constantly crying out for water. And if you go too long without water, you start to burn up inside. In fact, if you go past the point of no return, there's, a, there's torment inside. It's like your body is burning up. People have described it like a hell. And Jesus is saying that I have something that your soul needs even more than your body needs water. I have something your soul needs even more than your body constantly crying out for water. Because the Bible says that if God himself, if a personal relationship with God, if God himself is not at the center of your soul, you will place any other thing, whether it's relationships or beauty or your wealth, something material, your family, as that thing that you need, that you will use to define your sense of worth in life, your source of worth, and you will long for it, you will thirst for it, and so it's not so much in that thing. It's not that that thing is a bad thing for that matter, but it's what that thing means to you. It's what that thing gets you. It's that sense of worth. And your soul, when you latch onto that thing, if God is not in the throne, God is king. If he's not in the throne of your heart, if he's not your control center, at your control center, and that something else is there, you will pursue it, you will want it, you will do whatever it takes, go through every length. You will cross every boundary and step over anybody to get what you need. We've been there. And that's how the corrosion begins. Your soul corrode until you die. Trying to get that sense of worth from these things. And yet Jesus says in verse 10 that if you long for him, I mean, look at the promise that he, said, he makes with this woman. If you long for him, in you becomes a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring of life. It's a remarkable statement. What does it mean? He's saying, if your hope is not in Jesus... If your hope is not in Christ as the savior of your life, as the king of your life, you will place your emotional and psychological and physical well-being in something else, likely anything else. Something else will become that source of worth. And you will fixate your heart and soul and mind and strength on those things. In other words, you're going to worship that thing. That's what it means. Disciples asked Jesus, <clears throat> what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul. <clears throat> In other words, your relationship with God should captivate all of your energy, should captivate your soul. It should be the measure of your worth. That is the definition of worship. It's why the word worship comes from the Latin word worth-ship. Because that thing that you worship is that thing that defines your sense of worth. And so if your job becomes that thing, if your career becomes that thing, you will focus everything on your career. You will focus everything on your job. There's this burden then because it becomes more than just a job. It becomes more than just a career. It becomes your hope. It becomes your significance. It becomes your meaning. If it's in relationships, you will focus everything on loving and being loved by that thing. You will manipulate people and that thing. You will buy people if you need to, you will do whatever it takes. You will change for them. 
You see that? Because it's more than just about that relationship. It's about intimacy and approval. It's about the sense of being loved ultimately. If your heart is fixated on a girlfriend or a boyfriend or your spouse or your child, you will sacrifice everything for them because it's more than about the benefit and the beauty of that relationship. It's more than about family. It's about that deep sense of security that comes with intimacy, knowing that you are loved no matter what. This is how, these are the ways that we know that we are okay. Oh, and we have a way of, you know, navigating through all the difficult, uh, you know, challenges around that because we start to compare ourselves with other people and because whatever we can do to make ourselves feel worthy, that's what gossip is. Gossip is not about sharing something that's important to share. There are good channels and right channels for that. You know what gossip is? When you're doing that as a way of pushing one person down so you feel better about yourself. We do that in our jealousy, in our envy, in our gossip. (laughs) Now, When you lose that job, when you lose that friend or friends, when you lose your boyfriend or your girlfriend, God forbid you lose your spouse or your child, life collapses, doesn't it? Uh, We're burning inside. There's this deep loss, torment. It's like we're in hell. And, um, you know, one of my, it's like, I can't believe I'm sharing this. One of my favorite movies is uh, You Got Mail. You Got Mail. You guys, it's an older movie. In the 90s, it came out. Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan. I like all those movies, you know. Um, and uh, it, there's one part where Tom Hanks, he's seen his father just divorce all these women. And now this latest nanny that he, she ended, he ended up marrying leaves him. And he says, well, what are you going to do now? And she says, well, what, what, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to go find someone else. But that's how, and we laugh at that, but the thing is, that's how we are. That's what we do. If you're not happy in your job, you find a new job. If you're not happy at your church, you're going to find a new church. And there are good and right reasons for doing any of those things. I mean, take it from me, I'm a bivocational minister. Trust me, I understand. So in no way am I denigrating any of you looking for another job. Sometimes you need to break up with somebody. It's important to do that. It's not just a test of your faithfulness. There are right and good reasons for that. But a lot of times, we've hooked so deeply into these things that when we lose it, we've lost ourselves. And there's that longing and thirsting. It is unquenchable. That woman having to come to draw water every day only to see that water, that hard work that she put into that water, getting that water and to lose it. It just literally goes like water. The next day she's got to go back out there again. It is representative of the lives that we live cyclically every day when we are hooking our lives and our hope, our heart and soul and mind into something else. You see that? It's unquenchable. And so this woman in verse 15, she hears Jesus 
She's physically thirsting. She knows that physical thirst is the reason that she has to keep coming here and coming back. And Jesus is offering her an opportunity to receive something that will quench her thirst. And she says, I need this. But Jesus is talking about that deeper thirst. She says, give me this water. And Jesus now goes that next one. He says, go call your husband and come back. Go call your husband and come back. Why? He's getting to the heart of the thirst. He says, you've had five husbands. And the man that you're currently with is not even your husband. You've had six men. And it's not getting better. It's actually getting worse. Six men. You think you learned some lessons. But it's not about the lessons it's the fixation. Six men. Six is known as, in the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, you know that it's an imperfect number. It means it's, it's a number that represents restlessness, dissatisfaction, incompletion, failure. This woman comes at the sixth hour to this well, having had six men. It's a pattern of her life about getting and finding love apart from God. She's looking for that perfect man. And it's getting worse. It's not getting better. She's looking for that perfect husband. Her heart is fixated on it. A lot of single people out here looking for that perfect person. Nowadays, you know, the way we view dating, casually we view dating and sex and marriage. We're looking for that perfect experience, that perfect person. This woman and that's six tries, and it's actually getting worse, not better. And so she's been doing it apart from God, apart from God's people, apart. She's running from people, running from God, and she's tired, and she's restless, and she's longing, and she's out of every circle. Today, people here are longing for hope, and they're longing for justice, and fulfillment, and acceptance, and beauty, and intimacy. And what are you hooking your hearts into? Jesus says, I can give you a lasting hope. I can give you a living justice. I can give you an eternal fulfillment, an unwaverable, wavering acceptance. I'm offering you an unfading beauty and an undying intimacy. And so when you pour your life into Jesus, he says, a spring of water will well up and overflow. What does that mean, overflow? Relationships stopping about what you get, but more about what you give. Because you have a love that is abundant. It is overwhelming. You have a hope that is real and abundant. It's like a spring, a fountain. You can't stop a river. This woman's alone. Today, I mean, we hate being alone. To be alone is like being a curse. But you have to think about this. God works through that aloneness, doesn't he? Some of us right now, we're alone. You may be around people, but you know inside, between you and God, you're alone. If this woman was not alone, she would never have met Jesus. So Jesus doesn't approach her despite her aloneness. It's through it that she encounters him. Today, a lot of us, 
Maybe because of the last year and a half, we're isolated and we haven't broken out of that. It's had an impact on us, but we are alone. And maybe that aloneness started way before that. Take a unique opportunity now then, if you are in that place, to be near Jesus. Connect with him. Hear him. What is he saying to you about the things that you worship? This woman is alone because, I mean, she messed up. Because of her sinfulness. This deep-rooted sinfulness. And everybody sees it. Everybody knows it. So they've distanced themselves from her and she distanced herself from them. Jesus is saying, I will use even your screwed-upness, all of your screw-ups, your sinfulness, your aloneness to create that fountain of joy that you need in life. Because it's through that aloneness Jesus became personal to her. So this conversation leads this woman to say, living water, I need it, I want that. Verses 28 to 29, what happens? The woman runs back to the town, to the very people that shunned her, that she avoided with great pain. Why? She runs back to them. There's new life. Stop mattering what other people thought. Her thirst was quenched. She's found the seventh man. The search is over. The shame is gone. Guilt has been removed. In verse 28, she left her water jar, the very thing that caused a sag in her shoulders and that fatigue is gone. She left it behind because she experienced a new source of worth, the ultimate source of worth. Water does what? Water cleanses. Water refreshes. Water revives. Water renews. Water gives life. How do you get that? How do you get living water? Look to Christ. Look at Jesus. Jesus Christ was betrayed by his friends, rejected by the religious people, rejected by the rulers. And so he's on the cross and he's suffering and he's dying. That means that the most perfect person, the most obedient person that ever walked the earth got thrown out of every ring. And on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, all those other rings I can endure, maybe. But I'm now out of the most important circle, my source of worth. The love of the Father, the love of God, which captivated my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength, has just left me, and I am smashed. I am down. I am alone. I am abandoned. I'm suffering the curse. The wrath of God is pouring out on Jesus as a penalty for our sins. And so Jesus is on the cross. He's groaning and moaning and he's sagging. He's bearing the weight. And he, there he cries out, thirst. It's not just a physical thirst. It's that cosmic thirst 
that longing, he's longing for God. And God has left him. I thirst, he says. God's presence has left him. And so he's saying, I'm suffering the torment of hell. The wrath of God pouring out on him. And God has rejected him. Forensically, legally, positionally rejected him. And so what is hell? Hell is separation from God. Jesus on the cross is suffering. The dried up, withering torment of hell. Why? Jesus Christ was rejected so that we would be accepted. Jesus Christ would be abandoned so that we would be embraced. Jesus Christ was disowned so that we would be adopted. Jesus Christ was alone so that we would never be alone. Jesus Christ cries out, I thirst, so that we could drink of him. He's poured out. They stuck him with that spear and water and blood poured out so we could drink of him and be renewed. He gave everything, everything for his people, everything. His life cosmically screwed up and broken and shamed. He's out of every circle, the Trinity itself, because God had abandoned him. The Trinity was torn apart in a sense, and he became alone for you. The gospel is good news because you can be poor and uneducated, low class, used up sexually, outcast, screwed up, and out of every ring, and yet the cross shows us that there is no boundary, that Jesus would not be willing to cross for you. There is no danger, there is no suffering, that he is not willing to endure for you to bring you in to his embrace and shape you, make him your bridegroom. You want to be a good wife? You want to be a good wife? Make Jesus your husband first. You want to be a good boyfriend, a right boyfriend? You want to be a good girlfriend, a right girlfriend? Make Jesus your bridegroom first. Don't let anyone take that away first. Don't replace that with anything else first. Make him king. It's a tall order. Impossible without God's spirit working in us. Impossible without new life. But it's also good news because there's the validation. When you look at the cross, there's the validation and the acceptance and the intimacy and the beauty that you've been looking for all your life, the love that you've been looking for all your life. There it is, embodied in Jesus, suffering, crossing every boundary and enduring all that suffering for you and dying. Oh, we all want that one person who says, I'd be willing to die for you. And Jesus Christ comes to you, invites you in and says, I did. It's finished. It's done. Stop making other people Jesus for you. That's why you're unhappy. Apart from him, you will thirst. You will be unhappy. Joined to him, there'll be a spring of water welling up to eternal life, new life. And that is going to give you, I mean, that power, 
is going to give you the power to cross boundaries for others because you are so full. You are so loved. You are overwhelmed by the embrace of Jesus. It becomes like a spring. You know what the fruit is of that? Are you moving towards people who are different than you? Are you listening to people that you don't like listening to? Are you hearing from people? It's easy to hear from your friends. But are you, there are friends, and then there are friends that are friends because, not because it's easy to be with them. It's safe to be with them sometimes. Some friends can be kind of dangerous, you know what I mean? Because they say stuff you don't want to hear. But you know they're saying it because you need it. No one else is going to do it. And there is a deep love for you that makes you wonder why. Are you moving towards people who are different than you? Are you listening to people who are different from you? Are you serving people who are different than you? Are you loving people, befriending people? Is there befriending grace in your life? Is there a forgiving grace in your life? Or are you just looking for love from the same age, same color, same stage, same socioeconomic class and status, same education as you? And in the process, dismissing other people totally because you're, hey, I'm good. I got what I want, got what I need. Is that why you're here? Jesus didn't just dismiss you. Jesus didn't just kind of walk by, see you suffering and say, I got stuff to do, but I'll help. He came for you and he proved it on the cross and went all the way for you the gospel redraws our boundaries the gospel quenches our thirst next week we're going to move towards the gospel challenging our motivational core our center and how the gospel makes us beautiful. Let's pray together.